Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Speak With People podcast, where we believe that words matter, and we want to help you become a better, a more effective communicator, whether one-on-one or in a small group from a stage or from behind a camera. And so this week, we are so incredibly uh, pleased, so incredibly blessed, uh, so incredibly delighted. Man, I got so many like, you know, kind of great words right there uh, to have a longtime friend, Mark Ostriker, on the podcast. Well, welcome, Marco. Yeah, thanks. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's so nice to have you here. Could you just uh, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, what you do, all that kind of stuff? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a 40-year youth ministry veteran um, wow. and uh, started in Michigan. And uh, you blue. and I have some common roots. Yep. And then uh, moved across the country uh, as a junior high pastor. Uh, I love junior hires. It's mm. kind of my my jam. Um, and uh, then back in 98, I moved to San Diego to work at Youth Specialties, which for people who don't know, uh, still exists, but it used to be kind of very much the leader in training and resourcing youth workers. Uh, and I spent most of my years there as the president. And then um, that organization got sold in 2009 and I lost my job. So I started a new thing called the Youth Cartel. I just youth realized cartel. that yesterday, the uh, as of when we're recording this, uh, was my 12-year anniversary of that layoff from Youth Specialties. Wow. So I was at, at YS for 11 years, but I've been gone now for 12 years. Wow. Um, yeah. Youth Cartel uh, is in similar space. We basically do two things. We're a publisher for youth workers, uh, and then we run a year-long coaching program. Um, it's like a whole life leadership development program for youth workers in cohorts of 10. And we've had 700 people go through that. So it's, wow. it's doing well. We have five, six, or seven cohorts a year uh, all around the country. Married to Jeannie for 36 years, uh, and we have two kids. They're 28 and 24, and live together with a few other people in a house about 15 minutes away from us. Oh, that's fantastic. That's my life, and I'm sitting at my desk, which is a picnic table in my backyard. (laughs) A nice (laughs) advantage that San Diego provides for me. This is literally my only desk. If it's too hot or too cold, I go inside, but otherwise, this is where I sit. Uh, well, it's freezing in Tampa today. It was like 46 degrees this morning. So wow. pe- people are losing their minds. Yeah. They're in parkas. <laughs> I bet. Poor it little lizards are falling out of the trees. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, Marco, I can still remember meeting you for the first time. Uh, Cause I, you know, I was junior high pastor, of course knew who you were. And one of my, my volunteer leaders invited me to come over for dinner. And I'll still remember. He's like, hey, come over for dinner. My my brother-in-law is going to be there. And I was like, okay. He didn't tell me <laughs> who you were. He didn't tell me your name. But I was like, okay, free meal. I mean, I'm in my 20s or whatever. Like, let's yeah. let's go. Yeah. And, and I walk in and I'm like, oh, well, hi. I, hi, how you doing? Like, literally was, yeah, I had the whole, like, you know, clammy, clammy, palmy, my palms. And, <laughs> and my mom, I was like, oh, what do I do? It's Marco. Like. <laughs> This is and this is crazy. And by the by, the end of that time, you thought, uh, oh, he's a normal guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you put your pants on like everybody else, you know, 
in yeah. the end, you know, you my shorts, my shorts, <laughs> your it's usually shorts. not pants, your shorts, you but when you do put your shorts on, though, you write, uh, I was trying to go with the uh, cowbell cowbell joke there, but I, I messed it up. Wow. The great, I, I didn't see that. The great SNL skit, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know. When you put, anyways, skit. all right, it was horrible. I, don't know how it was, I didn't see how it was going to tie into where you were going, but okay. It was horrible. Hey, it was just horrible. clearly. <laughs> just awful. Well, hey, we want to dedicate this podcast to talking about speaking with teenagers, communicating <laughs> with, you know, the next generation. And it's, it is, it is so drastically changed. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Even in my old life, my oldest is 22. The youngest is eight. You know, my eight year old, yeah. you know, he'll grow up not knowing what life is. I mean, if, if the iPad battery dies, like it is a family emergency, you know, everything's going to go, you know, crazy. And he has autism. So, you know, we kind of navigate all of that kind of stuff, but yeah, you know, speaking with teenagers. So as we think about communicating with teenagers you know what's the most important thing especially like i'm gen x my parents are boomers what do we need to know about communicating with teenagers in 2022 well i guess the the first thing i would say is not a direct answer it's just that i have i have pushed back to uh generational studies Mm. and caricatures i i think they're uh unfair and often fairly inaccurate But I think there's a reframe that works, uh, and that's to acknowledge that culture is always changing, Mm. and there's certainly times when it changes more dramatically. And in our current cultural reality, it's fair to say that teenagers and young adults are indigenous to this culture. It's Mm. all they've ever known. So it shapes them in particular ways based on that reality. Whereas you and I are immigrants to this culture, we're still living in the same culture that they are. Uh, and it's just that it, it, it impacts us in a different way because we're immigrants to it. Right. Um, so I do think there have been some pretty significant uh, changes uh, in, in culture over the last, mm, well, I would say 75 years or so. Hmm. Um, kind of the modern era of youth culture, which started at uh, at the end of World War II, it really started because um, uh, in the U.S., every state adopted mandatory secondary education laws that went through grade 12. So it was kind of the invention of the American high school that birthed youth culture, right? As we as we think of youth culture today. Um, but what I see so often uh, when I talk to parents, particularly or church leaders who are older, this would often be true with senior pastors, especially if they used to be a youth pastor, um, is that people have uh, they have an, a misunderstanding about the experience of being a teenager today because mm-hmm. they're based they're basing their understanding on what they remember about their own teenage years. And the tendency is to look back on your own teenage years, whatever faulty memory that would be, right? And then either see that through utopian lenses or dystopian lenses. To, mm. So to either see it as it was the best time of my life. And that's probably colored as much by Hollywood and other, uh, you know, information <laughs> sources that right. feed into that. And then they get a kid who's, you know, kind of mopey and walking around the house looking sad. And the parent says, why are you always so mopey? Don't you know that this is the best time of your life? It's never going to get better than this. And the kid, right. 
if that's true, I'm screwed because this <laughs> sucks, you know? Um, right. Or, or on the other extreme, parents and uh, educators and uh, ministry leaders often uh, look back with dystopian lenses. Maybe they had some trauma in their teenage years or they remember it being difficult or lonely or whatever it was. Uh, and they assume and uh, that that's the experience of all teenagers and project that on mm. them. Now, that's not really about cultural change as much as it is just that we we tend to, us adults, especially those who aren't working daily with teenagers, we tend to make assumptions about what it's like to be a teenager. And those are often not all that accurate, right? right? Um, if we're gonna talk about how to characterize the change uh, that's taken place, um, it, the, it, the, the full answer is probably a little more long than makes sense for this format. But I, the shorthand is that belonging and the search for belonging has become the lens through which the average teenager views everything. So wow. my search for belonging helps me understand who God is and what my relationship with God is. My search for belonging informs who I am. So, I mean, this is a, a critical search, a, a change. Teenagers in the 50s and 60s were trying to figure out identity first, and that would inform where they should look for belonging. Today, right. teenagers are looking for belonging, and then that will tell them who they are. That'll answer their identity quest. Um, so it just informs everything. And that calls on us then to offer meaningful places of belonging prior to belief. Right. Um, yeah. Right. So big, big shift on that. I, I, I can't even imagine, you know, I middle school years, I dealt with, you know, I was a shorter guy, a little stockier, um, you know, dealt with as, you know, a good amount of, you know, I, I like to say lovingly stocky, you know, but a good amount of bullying. <laughs> um, but I, the bullying didn't come home with me. I mean, it only came home in my mind, you know, now uh, our kids, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like they, they can't escape it. And, and I was, right. you know, thinking through what you said, the sense of belonging. I mean, uh, it, it's just amazing. I think about this generation and, you know, their, their desire. I mean, I, it's for every generation, but the desire for likes, you know, how much of that identity do they get from their online identity? It, it's, it's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, that's an enormous challenge and it's a complex one because on one hand, let's say a positive side, um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple positive things, right? I mean, one is, we we obviously all like it. I mean, oh yeah, I I use social media way more than my twenty something kids. They tease me about it, um, <laughs> and so I mean there are advantages, right? I mean I I don't want to dismiss those. Then the other thing is the lead researcher on um, teenagers and social media use. Uh, her name's Dana Boyd. She says that what teenagers are doing in social space is just the same thing that they've always needed to do for developmental reasons mm. but they used to do it in public places so the mall the park things like that the neighborhood but that for the most part in america those public places have no longer are no longer available to teenagers you know we we used to hang around the mall and that's no longer really allowed that kind of loitering you could right. call it around the mall right. um Right. And with the safety concerns that a lot of parents have, whether they're warranted or not, um, kids often don't have the access to just roam the neighborhood or hang out at the park by themselves. Right. 
So instead, uh, they, they went to use a technology that had already been built. By the way, social media was not intended to do what it's now doing. Mm. Um, and teenagers made it what Boyd calls a networked public, a place where they're working out the regular tasks of adolescents wow. in an online space because that's what's available to them. So that's that's the good, you could say good or more positive side of it. It's uh, the vast majority of interactions that teenagers have in an online space is with friends that they have in real life. Um, and it's just an extension of that. Of course, there's all kinds of threats and it's all been well-documented. Sure. And the quantity of not just bullying, but all kinds of other stuff, sure. uh, unhealthy things. Our kids aren't getting enough sleep because they sleep with their phones and they end up waking up all night long anytime a notification comes in. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, the, just the quantity, uh, you know, what it does to our brains uh, has uh, well-documented negative repercussions. So, I mean, one of the, if you are a parent listening to this, uh, one of the implications is to try to figure out what are some healthy boundaries that will allow my kid to engage in this space, but not in a, in a way that minimizes the potential damage. Mm. Um, and I, my proposal is they need to be family rules, not just rules for the teenagers. <laughs> if they're just, if they're just rules for the teenagers, wow. it, it, it can, it ends up feeling hypocritical right because the parents really are like unfair. i pay for it you know so you'll yeah I don't have to do it you have to do it yeah yeah so like we had a rule in my family i think it's a good rule that um uh devices are not allowed at the dinner table hmm. um we tried to have um dinner together as a family multiple times a week uh and you know that got more and more challenging as the kids got older but there was a commitment to a certain amount of those per week and uh, and I'll tell you, part of the reason for that is because clear research came out from Fuller Youth Institute that showed this direct connection to kids who held on to their faith beyond youth group uh, as they moved into their 20-something years. One of the closest parallels were that those kids had dinner with their family when they wow. were in their teenage years. Wow. Um, so, um, but that meant all of us couldn't have our devices at the table. And more often than not, the person who violated the rule was me. <laughs> and I'd pull out my phone for something because I felt the buzz in my pocket. Right. And my kids would call it, my kids would call me on it. So it was a family rule. Another family rule we had was that we did not sleep with our devices. So oh. like to this day, uh, even though my kids are out of the house, my phone charges in the bathroom. I, I, I don't want it next to my bed. Um, wow. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing is going to happen that really demands my attention that I can't, that can't wait till morning. Um, and, uh, so we had that expectation of our kids too. And, and we had the same when we were, uh, going through some years where it really seemed to be an issue, uh, kind of the middle teen years, it was, we also had a rule that you couldn't use your devices, uh, in your room with the door closed. So that kind of use of your devices was, and whether th that was your laptop or whatever, was right. supposed to be reserved for the pu the public spaces of the house. Um, 
So, yeah, I've never really been one who believes in uh, the kind of filters and things that are out there. I, there's ways around them. Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of a pol pol policing. But we had a, a series of boundaries. Uh, and then we also um, had a series of checks that yeah. we would work work with our kids. Yeah, yeah, that's good. I as you were saying that about uh, the open policy, my 18 year old sat next to me, and I, that one intrigued him. He was like, "Oh, that would be a different." Because right now we don't have that one in our household, but it's not a bad one. Uh, and and that's that's absolutely fantastic. It's interesting though. You see such a parallel for you know how kids. Uh, react to, you know, even how their parents react online. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. You know, it's like, oh, where'd you learn that? Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Like your mom right. regularly or your dad regularly, you know, spills all the family drama. Oh, okay. You know, like, oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one. For sure. It's just crazy, though, the identity thing. You know, our eight year old, uh, you know, we, He's a second grader, loves life, loves, loves, loves technology. Now, he does have autism, mm. and so, you know, he does have an affinity towards, you know, he loves kind of doing the, the same game, the same process, you know. But just the thought of him being able to have his own YouTube channel someday, like, that, <laughs> he gets so incredibly excited. You know, what do you want to do someday, Kai? I want to be a YouTuber. <laughs> you know, what kind of YouTuber uh -huh. do you want to be? I want to play Minecraft and show people how I do it. You know, like he's just, you know, it's just amazing that that's already at eight. You know, that's, yeah. that's what he wants to do. Right. So, yeah, right. so communicating with teenagers. So, you know, I have, I have some friends who own businesses and they employ, you know, teenagers. Let, let's talk for a second about how, how we can communicate to, you know, teenagers, students in the workplace, because, you know, this person's always telling me, but he's just got some frustration because it's like, you know, in his, his words, they just don't respond like they used to 20 years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I know some of the stuff we've already covered will be, I mean, really good for, you know, some of those folks to listen to, but is there anything else? If somebody's going in blind, Hey, I need to remember maybe some of these practices to kind of dig into a conversation with a teenager, uh, you know, to kind of, kind of, kind of get in there and communicate. Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of the principles of communicating one on one with a teenager are the same as they would be for communicating with any adult. Um, right. And I, I think so often it's just that uh, we we're the problem. We assume that somehow that teenagers are this alien species that require a whole different language set or whatever. And that's not what teenagers are looking for in a relationship that matters with an adult they're they're looking for somebody who's uh themselves and authentic right not not uh not somebody who's trying to pose as a teenager right. or be hip, hip or something like that right so you know like right now right. at my church i'm leading a sixth grade boys uh small group and um who they're little and they're squirrely. Um, and, you know, for, if I like try to act like one of them or use their language or whatever, it's for one, it's just not going to be effective. But also I'm just going to come off as a total poser. Right. <laughs> right. A total poser, poser. And then I forfeit my influence with them. Um, so, yeah, it's treating them with respect. 
right? I mean, this is a general communication principle for all, for all ages. I, I, I want to treat the person I'm talking to with a level of respect, even if I don't know them. Yep. Um, I want to have curiosity toward them to discover what it is that they need and what's important to them, what their values are. Mm. Um, I want to find things. I want to discover things that I can affirm um, and uh, to celebrate, right? And and I want to speak to them, particularly when I'm talking to teenagers, I want to speak to them as uh, as if they were adults rather right. than as if they were children. Right. That was something, uh, as we were parenting, I just saw my wife do really well because I, you know, I'm from a smaller family. She had her parent, her, her parents had a million kids and then adopted a million kids. And so when we started having kids and toddlers, I was like, oh no, what are we going to do? And she's always been like a baby whisperer, you know, toddlers, but that's the one thing she always did. She, she didn't speak to the toddlers like they were some alien or a different where uh. we would find out we'd go to other people's houses and, you know, they would talk to their toddlers. That's my opinion. Like they talk to uh-huh. their dogs sometime, you know? Like, yeah. No, yeah, I get it. But, and then we do that to the same thing with, with teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers. And sometimes yeah. it is hard though. I drive around my neighborhood and there's, there are some middle school boys who will stare me down when I drive by. And I'm like, you know what? I grew up in Detroit. I have a bad back. But if my back wasn't bad, I'd be stopping this car and I would get out and I'd show you. But it's, that's not all the teenagers, but some of them, I'm just like, man, if I would have had that confidence at 13, you know, yeah. that would have been incredible. Yeah, yeah. totally. <laughs> I had some of that at times, but I knew I was putting on, when I, when I did things like that, I knew I was putting on a persona. Mm. Right. I, I, and the reality is that's very normal for teenagers are trying things out behavior wise, belief wise. Um, they're trying things out to see, is this me? Uh, does this feel right? Is this the kind of person I want to be? Is this the kind of way I want to project, um, who I am? And, you know, again, that's just a normal part of the adolescent development experience. Mm. Uh, so we just need not be freaked out by it. That's right. So when it comes to parents, I know there's a lot of parents listening. You know, the question I get frequently is, you know, how can I communicate or can, can we disagree and still communicate, you know, without the slam mm. doors, the, the frustrations, the, you know, you don't understand my life. Is there any, is there any words of advice you could speak into parents just about, you know, having those conversations when you hit the disagreement level? You know, what, what yeah. are the posture, some practices that you can take as you approach that with your, your teenagers? You know, we can address this for parents, but I think this is a helpful, broader question because I just regularly am finding myself uh, as a communicator in places where I know some portion of the audience disagrees with me, mm. right? So like I uh, have gotten into this space where I'm regularly asked to speak on, to speak to youth workers on pastoring LGBTQ teenagers. Hmm. Uh, and I, I did a seminar yesterday uh, on this topic with, with a bunch of people. And I know there's disagreement in the room about theology and practice uh, and different things. And one of the kind of little uh, axioms, mantras that I've 
started, you know, leaning into and trying to communicate is that community does not mean sameness and friendship does not mm. require or imply sameness or uniformity. Wow. And our, our cultures become so tribal uh, and so divided and divisive that there's this myth out there and people on both sides of the political spectrum have this myth and people on both sides of every theological conflict have this assumption that if I'm in meaningful relationship with you, then that infers I agree with you on everything. Wow. Right. And so like in the example uh, that I just gave of talking to people about LGBTQ issues, the myth is if I'm friends with you or walk with you or whatever, go to your gay wedding or whatever it is that I'm endorsing your sin is the way it would often be phrased. <laughs> and I would just say it's just not true. Right. We can be in meaningful, really meaningful relationships of respect um, and affirmation and encouragement that is reciprocally offering belonging that we don't agree on all kinds of things. I'm sure that Jason, you and I, if we dug into a bunch of theological topics, sure. we would find plenty of things that we disagree on, but that does not diminish in any way our level of affection or respect for one another right. or the fact that we can genuinely call each other friends. Right. Exactly. So let's move that over to the parent space. Um, because, you know, the, so the implication is yes, we can disagree without it destroying the relationship. The, right. the, one, of, one of the challenges as a parent is that we often think the only resolve is for them to come to my position, my, my belief, my, right. whatever, you have to believe what whatever, my desire. Yeah. You have to believe what I believe or you have to do what I'm at telling you to do. And when we're talking teenagers, I mean, they are, I would say, intentionally and lovingly created to be in a space where they're figuring out what pushback looks like. It's all mm -hmm. part of, we've talked about a couple of the tasks of adolescence, belonging and identity, but there's a third one. The fancy word for it is autonomy and it's about agency. It's how much do my choices matter? Like, can I actually make decisions that will change the trajectory of my own life? Can I can by my choices, what I say and do, can I influence my family mm. and my friend group? And is it even possible that I could influence the world? That's this agency question of autonomy. And uh, it's, it's a normal, healthy part of being a teenager, but parenting somebody going through that can be super challenging. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Right. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, a couple of principles for us as parents. And this is a broad communication principle, too. We've got to embrace a posture of humility. Yep. Right. Um, you and I both know we've heard gifted communicators who come off as arrogant and I just don't even care what they say. doesn't yep. matter how brilliant they are. Yep. Um, but man, a mediocre communicator who's got a clear sense of humility. I'll listen to them every day. Yes. Um, so, yep. yeah, I want people to develop their communication skills, but uh, really humility is is like the trump card here. So yep. starting humility from a place wins. of humility, a desire to build understanding and compassion and respect 
And that starts with us, not mm. just projecting that our kids have to find that space. Yep. Wow. That's, that's rich and something that I'll unpack for a while. Uh, let's just, let's just move that to kind of one other question. Uh, just because you spend a good amount of time and have for years on a stage communicating to audiences of teenagers, you know, how has it changed over the years? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's gotta be fun to think. I can remember the first time I was speaking at a summer camp and I went, wait a minute, the camp counselors were in junior high, you know, when yeah. I, you know, and yeah. then I, I spoke to so many, re, you know, retreats or events where the, the youth directors, you know, were kids at the event. I mean, it's, it's just crazy, but now, you know, you've been given this opportunity where now you're speaking where, you know, I mean, th 30 years, four, 35, you know, people have heard you over that. Like, yeah. how has it changed? Yeah. Is there anything that you've learned that's just like, okay, I approach it differently this way? Well, one change is is really interesting, and it ties into the changes that we've seen in culture in general, but specifically in, in youth culture. I used to be able to, when I was a guest speaker at a large youth event, I used to be able to pick out the non-Christian kids in the room really easily. Hmm. Um, and it was during the worship time, and I could see they were disengaged or looking uncomfortable in one way, they had a defensive posture, arms folded or hands in their pockets, and they were not singing. I cannot pick them out of the crowd anymore. Right. And the reason for that is a cultural change. So we have gone from a place where in the modern world, where the way we understand what's true started with facts. Um, and in today's world, in a postmodern world, the way we understand what's true starts with experience. So I understand mm. what's true based on my experience. And that can sound threatening to some people. I don't think it needs to be. I think it would have resonated pretty well with first century Christians. Yeah. Um, and really in many ways, the whole kind of empirical and rational uh, thought approach to understanding what's true is a much more a product of the enlightenment uh, than it is anything that would have resonated with people mm. in first century. Um, so, uh, because of that, kids are willing to try on behaviors and even try on beliefs to see if it offers, uh, an experience. And in church world, we would say a, probably a transcendent experience that helps them define or understand what's true in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's one big shift that I've seen, right. Um, I would say a couple other points of advice to speaking to teenagers. One is I just found more and more that I have to speak to a need that I have, or at least find on an emotional connection to my content. Hmm. If all I'm doing is trying to deposit good information in the heads of the people listening to me, and it's not something that I have some connection with, and I would even suggest it needs to be more than an intellectual connection. Mm. It needs to be a, a heart connection in Definitely. some way. Um, then that makes a giant difference in the tone of the room and in the level of engagement. And hopefully clears up space for the Holy Spirit to do really good work uh, in those who are listening. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, a general principle that's true <clears throat> outside of teenagers, but just, just doubly true with teenagers is that story is so critical. 
right. the use of story, right? right? Um, and there's a whole art to that. <laughs> we need to have, we need to learn the skill of that with enough framing and setup, uh, sometimes humor in there, but with a caution that too much detail ends up distracting. Right. So probably more than any other aspect of a talk, I'm doing a talk tomorrow night at a youth event. Um, and I haven't started it yet. I've got to work on that today. Um, I know that I have to have the, the, I know that my main point is like the first thing I want to land on because mm -hmm. <coughs> that's, I want to teach one point, not 16 points, <laughs> but, but the big rocks in the river, as I start to put it together are what are the stories that I want to tell? One of them in this case is definitely a Bible story. Um, and I'm going to tell that in a creative way. But what are other stories I can tell? I've also found so much more resonance with audiences of teenagers when I tell stories from my own life, particularly if I can remember stories from my life as a teenager. Yes. Um, and ideally not stories where I am the conqueror, but stories that are self-effacing. Yep. Um and that's just uh, uh, that offers all kinds of wins, uh, particularly in, in engagement and attention span, uh, as well as in the communication of important truth. It's just huge. It's just huge story. Yeah, yeah. story wins. And for me, I, I found over the years, if I can get someone to laugh with me, uh, boy, that just really starts to to break down some walls, and they'll they'll kind of lean in, and that that laughter opens up the door to listening, and in a way that you know, if I, if I love your phrase, if I was just depositing information, because I think so many people are like, I just got to get yeah. this information into their heads, right? Yeah. Um, so, but yeah. uh, well, goodness gracious, you have given us, I mean, so so many gems here. And I so appreciate it. I did want to say one last thing. You know, our our last time together, you and I sat across from a table at a restaurant in San Diego. I was in the thick of our teenage son going through this massive depression, panic attacks, anxiety. Yeah. We didn't know if he was going to get out of bed. It would be 16 yeah. hours of sleeping a day. And um, I just wanted to thank you. Like you, you have been there for, I mean, so many years and I think about that time, you know, I walked away just so thankful that I had someone to talk to who could, you know, listen and then kind of give me some uh, truth and <laughs> to remember. And so, you know, it, it was one of those moments. I have a couple of those Marco moments over the years where I'm like, okay, why did he just give me that time? But you did. And it was incredible. And so I just wanted to, I just want to say thank you again for that. So just really appreciate it. You bet, man. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Marco, for joining us on this episode of the Speak With People podcast. We are so excited that you could join us. Uh, we'll go ahead and put the, the notes in the uh, in the podcast information. You can find those. And uh, don't forget to check out thespeakersconference.com. Well, we believe words matter, and we hope that this episode uh, helps you as you communicate with the teenagers in your life. Thank you, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks.